Welcome to the Mortise and Tenon Magazine podcast, where we're celebrating historic furniture making. This is episode number eight. I'm Mike. And I'm Joshua. Uh, we had a little bit over a month ago now, right? Very successful packing yeah, just party. Yeah, month. And release for issue four. Uh, we had it here in our new shop. By the way, this is our first podcast from this space, so... It's totally new. New sounds around here. New and acoustics and the yeah. squirrels and yeah. traffic. We're trying to figure out. <laughs> yeah. The red wing blackbirds are pretty noisy. Uh, it's it's awesome. Uh, but we were really excited to have the packing party in here, and it was a great time. It was so wonderful. We had a great group of people come in to help us out. Shipped uh, more magazines than ever before yeah. over the two days. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, it, was almost, it was almost double last time, so yeah. it's not not quite double, but it was a, a lot more. <clears throat> but we had some amazing, amazingly efficient uh, folks working, and uh, basically on the first day of the packing party, we wrapped as many as we did all of the last packing party. Yeah. So, and it never felt like we were like stressed or straining. Or, no, no, it was a blast. It was, it was really great. Lots of great food, um, so it was it was a lot of fun. Um, and we've been getting uh, really great feedback from readers, uh, particularly we've been hearing about Jared's, uh, Jared Dahl's article uh, all about production work, all about yeah. the value of production work in, in handcraft. And a bunch of people have said, that's really opened my mind to making things in small batches and uh, how important that is. So that was really cool to hear that because um, I, I definitely, it, it opened my mind and it really uh, changed the way that I approach things. And I, I've had several different conversations with different uh, different craftspeople recently who completely back up the premise of that article. Like, yeah. Speaking of, you really get into this this kind of flow state when you're making a bunch of one thing and you can really master the techniques and master each step and you can really... Uh, gain efficiency and learn a lot about uh, the production process through making a lot of one thing and so yeah it's a great article and it's a great concept yeah so thank you jared for writing that yeah we all we all are growing because <laughs> yeah, of it absolutely. Uh, so if you if you wanted to order a copy of issue four it's available on our website mortisantenonmag.com uh, you can pick it up and uh, send us send us an email and tell us your, your thoughts on the articles we'd love to hear feedback so yeah um but our discussion for for this time for this podcast uh we the title we came up with is a new old way of working wood um new in the sense of new to us right but it's not new it's a way of working wood that's been around uh for longer than we know uh longer than recorded history um and it's this sense of uh handcraft using your hands to create things um, obviously, that's in general a theme we talk about a lot, uh, but we particularly wanted to to take this as our theme for this podcast um, because I just got back from Port Townsend, uh, the Port Townsend School of Woodworking, where I did a, a class building a table with hand tools uh, from rough boards. And I had a, a ton of really interesting conversations with the students in that class. Um, a, a lot of them, ha- I think all of them, hadn't really worked in that way uh, with those tools um, it's a very simple, bare-bones approach, uh, really no-nonsense. There are a lot of different techniques I emphasized. And it just uh, brought in a lot of uh, not only the the, uh, the woodworking techniques, but because of that, it sort of 
naturally transpires into this this way of living your life where you're right maybe not maybe not self-sufficient but you're you're competent to do a lot of things you're able to fix things you're able to build things that you want you're not stuck and bound to being only a consumer right it was it was you know it's a woodworking class it was really really fun to talk with a bunch of people uh and this is what they were echoing back to me and it was resonating with what i was uh with what feeds my way of working wood and so it's just this really cool experience yeah it's awesome it's it's funny you know building on the back of uh the packing party and the conversations we had then it's just totally an echo of that like all these people who are really super creative in their areas of of expertise and what they do and what they make and we were just going around the table at the meal times sharing conversations about you know these these focuses of of uh you know, maybe not 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 so much a, a consumerist look at life, but more like the joy of creating and and the joy of sharing this knowledge and passing it down and and uh, really appreciating knowledge from the past and right. how valuable it is culturally. You know, there's there's so much of craft that is just woven into culture, and a lot of times today, that's easily forgotten. You know, where we come from. Right. Yeah, and um, one of the things that, that I found particularly interesting when I was out in the uh, Pacific Northwest was um, I went into a restaurant and I've, I saw this around a few different places. There was this um, this style of flooring. It was actually uh, my dad and I went to this breakfast place that was this kind of like super nice, fancy breakfast place. Mm. It was kind of kind of fun to be in there, and the the floor looked like four plane marks mm-hmm. or, or actually like a scrub plane like super super, super deep out. yeah super uh scooped out uh it was clear that it was you know some planer with some special knives reproducing that look because because of the patterns i could yeah. see it was like a click laminate yeah it was like floor, a laminated click together that, floor pa- that texture worked in yeah and and so i was talking to my students about this and basically saying i wasn't saying Oh, I, yeah, that's so lame that they're trying to copy true handwork. Right. And I also wasn't saying this is so cool; everyone should have it. Right. Uh, it was a pretty extreme look, actually. Uh, but what I was—the reason I was pointing that out to my students—is because it was interesting to me to see that as, um, you know, even a, a posh restaurant right. sees that they actually want that as a primary service. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's a that's selling. That's what point. they want everyone to see. And it, what I think what they're appreciating is the texture. And, and it, you know, I think it speaks to the, the millennial culture's uh, sort of obsession with authenticity and right. uh, that kind of thing. Um, and I, I just found it really eye-opening to me that, wow, it's not just, you know, curmudgeonly hand tool people that are right. liking that. It yeah. actually is a, a pretty broad thing, even in, you know, stores like Whole Foods or in cafes yeah. or something like that. You see all those those rough boards used as table yeah it's like yeah. it's goofy yeah. and crazy I made this coffee table out of this palette yeah <laughs> but, but i think that's cool because what that does is it shows that people value uh being able to see the the fingerprints of some person who made that mm-hmm. they're not interested in um you know 3d printed tables for their cafes right they want reclaimed lumber right yeah, and so much of that it's like that old example of you know you go into the big box store and you see you know the the fiberglass front door that is like a a fake 
a raised panel door with the yeah. rails and the styles and you look at that and it's a solid one piece thing and you say well why does it look like that well i mean it's based on this long tradition of makers who understood the nature and properties of wood they knew how it moved they knew right. what would be stable and so they built a door built a door this way and now it's it's simulated to resemble what was you know hundreds of years in development to get this idea of a stable solid door um but it's it's very interesting yeah that that is now simulated but appreciated in that way uh yeah so as you were on the west coast uh out there i and my family did uh, a little bit of traveling down the east coast here we went all the way down uh by way of assateague island and ocean city maryland places i haven't been since i was really little and so we we ended up in colonial williamsburg and that was the goal of our trip but as we were planning the trip i said hey this is kind of on the way we need to do that go across the chesapeake bay bridge tunnel and and see all these things that i have these very vague memories of but it was a really wonderful trip we went down there and um i got to we got to visit uh, with bill pavlak who wrote an article for us in issue three about patterns i got to see some of those Nice strong oh, patterns nice. down in the cabinet maker shop and some stuff that even Mac Headley had drawn when he was in there. Uh, our kids got to play a harpsichord. And, uh, One of we, Ed, did Ed make the harpsichord? Yeah, Ed, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it awesome. was beautiful, you know, inlay and, oh, they sound awesome. The, all the little, I forget what the parts are called, but they use porcupine quills to pluck the strings. <laughs> and, oh my goodness. That's so so awesome. if anyone out there knows of a secondhand harpsichord that maybe they're you're willing to let go for... A song just let me know and i'll <laughs> i'll contact you we we would love to get you do harpsichord. barter right yeah we'll we'll trade you like an old upright piano for one or something like that but uh yeah it was it was great to see bill and to look around in there and we uh you know it was a bit rainy while we were there but um you know a lot all the furniture in there is is reproductions made the old way so it was really hard for me as we're touring you know the the um the governor's house there to not just want to crawl under everything they did have the original stuff in there and it was all barricaded off but uh i i really had to restrain myself so as to not embarrass my family (laughs) get dragged out or whatever okay but uh you know we went for dinner the one night at chowning's tavern and all the furniture is is um you know reproduced and I'm like, oh, banister back chair, check that one out. And oh, look at this one. This one's awesome. And look at these ladder backs. And I'm like feeling them all around. And everybody else is just trying to eat their meal. And it is great. It was it was definitely a kid in a candy store kind of uh, kind of experience, but uh, really wonderful. Um, and so I also down there got to spend some time uh, with a, a Cooper, and. Um, one of the things that that he mentioned, which uh, really, um, it was really cool to, to watch him at work. But one of the things he mentioned was uh, the article that I wrote in issue four really resonated with him. Uh, the article about uh, in in pursuit of the handmade aesthetic, uh, where I mentioned you know human um, tactile perception and how we can perceive these things by hand. Uh, he was talking about the fact that cooperage is done without measurement. Everything is basically by feel, by eye. And so a lot of stuff 
uh, he was demonstrating a lot of these steps to me and a lot of them were he'd just hold his hand in one place and tap a stave or adjust stuff by hand or plane things or adds things and just just feel it to see how it would work <laughs> that's amazing and it's just this this skill with uh with those tools and with knowing what good tolerances are to make a watertight container um also the other theme that we often talked about with issue four is is the axe as a, a oh, bench yeah, tool right. uh he, he would get to uh basically for like a non-watertight container he would just use an axe to do the the finished joints between the staves he'd start with the the stave he'd get the angle by eye with his cooper's axe and and that's it and that's it you know for a watertight <laughs> a watertight container he'd run wow. it on his jointer plane but um he said oftentimes did you be right off so the you, axe did you see one of those nail buckets yes you did yeah right? they are awesome it looks pretty tight to me. Like yeah. that's not a tolerance that I could get to with an axe. Wow! But um, just it's so much fun to just see that kind of skill in play. Uh, to see to see him working efficiently and fast while talking to me, uh, <laughs> it's pretty awesome. Well, it, it, you know, it's actually uh, when I was in the class at Port Townsend, um, I taught one of the things I taught the students was to use a single bevel hatchet to uh, rough out the tapers of uh, the, the, right, the yep. legs of the tables they're making. And it was, it was really cool to see, you know, I show them the technique that I'm comfortable with that works for me, and I taught them to reproduce that technique. And I, I can't, I think none of them had done that before. Mm. Uh, maybe they had a little bit of hatchet, uh, you know, experience, but no one had done this task before. And everybody did a pretty good job. Yeah. Obviously, what I'm, what I use it for, and what they were using it for was roughing work. Right. So it wasn't like what this Cooper was doing. Um, but even the ability, I mean, these things were razor sharp. That's right. the cool thing about uh, yeah, Port Townsend. You mentioned that There's the school there, all their their tools they provide for their students, and they're all razor sharp. They're yeah. awesome. They take good care of things. Yeah. So they had these single bevel hatchets sharpened like they're supposed to be, like right. chiseled. Chisels are uh, super sharp. And, it, and nobody had any problems with it. Um, they were able to really control the tool. And I said, basically, your job is to let the weight of the head cut. And your, your job is to kind of restrain it from going too far. Right, yeah. And they were really able to remove a lot of material fast uh, with that understanding. Um, so none of us uh, are Coopers or at that right. level where we're relying on it to take us on yeah. to the line. Yeah, right to the line, yeah. <laughs> but... Um, but it was cool to see it's not something that you can only do after 20 years of experience. Right. You can but it is something right. that you can yeah. pick it up right away and, and at least get the bulk of material away. Which is why you share those techniques in the apprenticeship tables video right, as well. Right, exactly. Because it's it's the quickest way to to waste off that material. Yeah. And so... Um, Even for the... In the video, I did the, uh, the drawer bottom bevels. I started right. with the hatchet. Yeah. I mean, any application where you need to remove... More than I don't know three eighths of an inch or something. Mm -hmm. I find I'm reaching for my hatchet a, a lot of times. Yeah. So, what the the theme of what a lot of Mike and I have been talking about since we both got back together, we've just been buzzing. We've, we've been talking been nonstop. Talking nonstop. <laughs> I mean, we've been we've been working, but yeah, well, right, <laughs> talking talking while working. But we've been sharing about so much that uh, that we've been learning and seeing and uh, things that we're interested in that just other people are is really cool um so we've been talking about the theme seems to be like um 
this idea of uh, people being feeling liberated in, in this way of working. Mm-hmm. And at Port Townsend, I had a lot of uh, takeaways from the class. I had, I've been, my mind has been reeling, mm-hmm. uh, and I've been thinking through uh, the responses of the students. I had several students that they they seemed really uh, affected by the class. And they said, "I've I've taken other classes before. I learned a lot, and they were great. This was a a, a whole nother kind of." way of working and it really has opened my eyes to other ways of doing things game changing um, yeah sort of game changing it was interesting to, to hear that um it that kind of way of that way of working would this new old way we're, we're calling right. it is it had the same effect on me and that's why we're so addicted to this and obsessed right. with it yep. trying to share it with everybody else um but it was really cool to see other people experience just being introduced to this way of working and, and really kind of you know, it's, I could see their their eyes were wide and their minds were excited. And they're like, wow, how can I incorporate this yeah. into the rest of my life? So much fun. Yeah, <laughs> I was exactly. Like, I remember that. And I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm still in that. You yeah. Know? Um, there were a number of things that I talked about in the class. You know, it was, a, it was a project class. We were building a table. But for me, it was almost more of a skills class. Hmm. Um, and so I introduced them to using a wooden four plane. Uh, to using and using a hatchet to rough out the tapers before the wooden four plane. Um, I think I might have made a few wooden plane converts. Yeah, but they yeah. they definitely were. Uh, at, at least for roughing work, they were all pretty excited about how quick and easy they were to to work with. Right. Um, I told them all, we're not using tail vices. Don't use tail vices, and they all got comfortable with it, and they mm. were able to adjust their work really quick. Um, there were just a lot of things like that that um that i found so effective and it shows me that um you don't need machines to work efficiently right um and so i I think even actually (laughs) we had a few students uh when they were chopping mortises i had them chopping at a saw bench or like a mortising stool just Mm -hmm. a low bench they had the legs down on the bench they were sitting on the legs and chopping the big stout mortise chisel and i had a few students chop all the way through <laughs> and, and until you see daylight until you see daylight uh until you see a different kind of wood coming yeah. up, <laughs> crying up but you know it was interesting because one comment that i heard was you know someone was saying that um they didn't they were experienced with mortising but this way of of chopping mortises surprised them at how fast it was yeah. they didn't even realize they were that deep that right. quick um and it sort of you know was interesting to me because i feel like mortising isn't really that bad i don't i don't know why it has such a bad rap for being so laborious right and this person was saying wow i can't i had to like back up it was too fast (laughs) so um just being up on top of your work body posture all that kind of stuff uh appropriate tooling for that kind of work um really seemed to be a game changer for a lot of people yeah uh, my time with the the cooper down in williamsburg was uh, pretty awesome in that way too because you know he didn't even have a workbench he had a stump bolted to the floor he had his uh, shaving horse and so he he had figured out or through his research found the best way to hold all the the parts of the the vessels that he's making 
and he would have different ways of bracing them and different ways. Basically, the goal being to brace it only for the operation that you're doing, and then yeah. it's immediately free because you're yeah. flipping it constantly. And you know, with a tail vise, like yeah. we say, it's locked down, and you got to go and unscrew the thing to pull it up. And you just everything is slow. Everything it slows just compounds. down. All those yeah. half seconds compound yeah. into taking yeah. And so just having that setup that where the the piece that you're working on is is free. It's locked in in the you know the direction of the force that you're applying. It's not gonna skate around. But then you can just pick it up and flip it and look at it and eye it and check it. Yeah, um, it's like magic. It, it <laughs> is like so magic. Cool. Yeah, yeah. It's it's very good. And uh, that really ties us back into a lot of things that we were talking again about uh, at the packing party. Uh, Will Lissack came up. Uh, He wrote the article for us in issue four about his time in uh, uh, Romania doing timber framing project. And oh my goodness, he brought, Will brought a pile of axes. He brought a pile of books that we had never heard of, but then, uh, you know, we went and started ordering these finding them wherever we could it's like yeah, it's like the day after the packing party we both just bought like all, yeah. the, all the books that will we brought. got on all the used book sites that we know of and just found you know a, a reasonable price for, for all of them and um oh my goodness it was it was really awesome so now we have each of us have piles of books that we need to get on but we, yeah. we started pecking away at a few of them and definitely flipped through all of them and yeah. it's just a an amazing amount of information all these books that are like where where have these been i've never heard of this this is amazing it's good to have people like will in your life yeah yeah absolutely (laughs) one of the things i was i was talking with will about was um my interest in exploring wooden plane making um because again with this theme that we're talking about today is not just you know how to make a table for yourself right but it's it's more of like a, a life philosophy of being equipped to make things for yourselves for yourself and to take care of yourself right um and so i was talking about wooden plane making and my interest in in getting into that because you know when you look at uh historic precedent mm-hmm. uh yes there were specialized plane making firms and you yeah. know Planes were being shipped out of England, out of, you know, out of London, and there was a, a really strong industry that was present. But every woodworker, every cabinet maker, every chair maker, they were they they thought of it as a, a matter of course to make their own right. planes. Yeah, you could also instead of buying the plane, you could just buy the iron, and it was commonly done. They yeah. would buy an iron, and they would make the body it's just a block of wood with a hole in it right and they were able to do that without even really thinking of it as this specialized trade that was so elusive and they're not they don't have that training they just did it because they needed a tool and it was it was a part of their well-roundedness their their mastery yeah it's like i was telling you that the quote from star wars right (laughs) because it all goes back to that it's darth vader has it all goes back to star Wars. oh it does yeah (laughs) He has Luke's lightsaber, and he say, "I see you've constructed a new lightsaber. Your skills are complete." And so that's that's sort of the whole thing. So you can be just a guy out there fighting the Empire or whatever, but when you can make your own tools, that really brings you full circle to to mastery, to yeah. understanding not not just being able to manipulate the wood into what you want. But you can take these resources and make the tools to manipulate the wood. And 
having that knowledge of what it takes to to make this tool to work the wood is it's just this whole deeper level yeah. of, of really understanding you know what you're doing and then obviously it it ties you into the the heritage of this craft you know the people who have been making their planes um for hundreds of years that thousands of years that people yeah. have been making these tools and you know tapping into that uh that insight and that level of knowledge that those people had um is really eye-opening well there's the the celebration of the the high skill that you want to tap into mm-hmm. but then there's the other side of it too mm-hmm. is you look at a lot of the surviving tools not the you know the specialty trade produced ones but the user made ones and there are two things that are interesting about them one they look very coarsely made right they look pretty shoddy yeah you know they're pretty rough some of them like at we saw one in the sturbridge osv collection the old sturbridge village collection that was a log with an iron in it yeah yeah i I love that but anyway go ahead and so they have this coarseness about them but then the other thing you often will see in these is there's a ton of wear right so it so wasn't like, oh, this is junk, I'm going to throw it out. It wasn't just a mistake that, oh, it's like, oh, it's like a new old stock because it was so terrible, I never used it. Yeah. They were heavily used yeah. as well. And used effectively. And you, yeah, so it's just, it's really interesting to me that, you know, you kind of compare um, this different philosophy of today, you know, we think of if we need a, a tool, we have to go buy it from somebody right. who has a special, special yeah. you know, ability to do it. Um, and those tools are really immaculate, really high performance, and yeah. really, really um, admirable. You almost feel guilty touching it because it looks so nice. And, and all, you, the first time you drop it, you're ready to. And all the toolmakers, I have a ton of friends that are toolmakers, and I've heard it from I think just about all of them. They say, "Yeah, everybody always says, oh boy, I hate to use this thing. It's so yeah. pretty,' you know." Yeah. So then the other end of the spectrum, you have stuff like this what you find in the Domini collection right or the book uh that i've been working on about jonathan fisher a blue hill yeah, cabinet his maker. tools he made his tools and there's a bunch of tear out on the sides and there's a bunch of coarseness and and they have a lot of wear yeah and it he really he was awesome able furniture. to make high functioning tools that weren't fussy because it was just him in a shop and he was just trying to make a practical tool right so from, i was telling will about this and i was curious to to dip into uh, traditional wooden plane making a little bit more and kind of push the boundaries a little bit on it and experiment with, because the only plane making I know is the high precision in all areas, really yeah. immaculate version. Perfect. Perfect. But I, I'm now curious to explore kind of reproducing like Jonathan Fisher's planes and right. the Domini planes that were actually, they look kind of haphazard. Right. Um, but presumably they functioned really well because they were used a lot right so um, like right before your trip yeah you decided to take a couple days yeah so yeah right before i left for washington i was actually kind of under, under the weather and needed some yeah hands-on he, time. you're sparing me from your your yeah. bubble of viral bacteria i didn't want to give you my plague or yeah. whatever i had yeah so thank I was, you for that yeah so i was just kind of you know fooling around and i thought you know what maybe now's the time to experiment with making a plane so I, I relied on uh, Steve Voigt's article in Popular Woodworking a few issues back and made myself a double iron plane in, I don't know, certainly less than a day's time, right. um, combined over two days, <clears throat> spread out. 
Um, and it's, I, I basically just, the, it's a coffin smoother, so the, the, um, the coffin shape on the outside has all these facets on it. Mm-hmm. I actually, because I assumed I would botch it, I made it in poplar. <laughs> right, because you had that chunk of poplar, had a chunk behind of poplar the bench that was for dry. the longest time. Yeah, so I thought I'll make it out of some disposable wood uh, because I'm going to screw this up. Uh, but you know what? It was really amazing yeah. because I didn't screw it up and I wasn't particularly fussy either. Um, there's this one reference I read, um, actually in issue four in my, my article about wooden plane restoration. Um, I referenced, I was talking about fitting the iron to the bed and, and how to adjust that. And I referenced uh, period examples and, and also uh, Roubaix. And what he said it was the only place I've ever seen personally that echoes what I've found on period planes, that the beds <clears throat> from top to bottom, a lot of them actually, um, or it's not that uncommon to find them hollowed out in the middle. They're not actually flat the whole right. way. They're, they're hollow in the middle. Uh, uh, here I have issue four. Rubos, what does he say? He said, this is what he said when he's describing how to make a plane. Rubos said, the bed should be well smoothed, straight, and a bit hollowed along its length so that the iron fits firmly at the mouth. And that's what I find. The beds are hollowed often, or even sometimes you'll find the reverse where the iron has been like pounded concave right. on the bevel side. So it's creating a hollow there. So it's touching at, at the mouth and it's touching up at the top of the bed. Um, and that kind of thing where, you know, you don't want a, a, a hump in the middle that's a pivot point for the iron right. to constantly shift or to create chatter. Um, so instead of trying to make it perfect, trying to machine it perfect, because as soon as the season shifts, the bed's going to move a little bit. Right. The better solution is just to remove that altogether. And it's that kind of stuff I'm interested in with plane making. If I think if we can, uh, kind of look at that, th- look at that kind of process, distill it down. The same kind of stuff that Mike and I are interested in with furniture, and do it for tooling and other kinds of things like that. Then I think we can f- see these uh, skills as approachable and begin to make high-functioning planes that are super practical and not fussy, and they don't require a lot of specialized tools. Yeah, I think that's, to me, that's way more fulfilling than just, you know, saying, oh, I am only a furniture maker, and so I'm right. not even going to touch tools. Cause right, that's just I'm just going to go and buy my tools. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that we've, uh, two words, bog iron. Okay, <laughs> one of the ideas that we've chased around is is going back even further. <laughs> like the the Viking Age tradition of, harvesting bog iron once a generation if you don't know what bog iron is go look it up it's way cool we're talking about b-o-g bog Bog iron yeah iron in a bog and you find these nodules and you smelt them and uh anyway yeah so we're talking about uh, even going even further back than just making the plain body but yeah not because it's the only way to do it but it's just if we could harvest bog iron <laughs> and make an iron, yeah. at the end of that, you'd say, dang, you know what? It's actually just some metal yeah. and a piece of wood. Yeah. And if you just take the steps, these things are totally pretty straightforward. Right. You know? um, yeah, I think that would be, <laughs> that would be a <laughs> super fun project. Yeah. Uh, we'll see. Be. We have to get Will to come up here. And I have uh, another friend, Eric. Uh, a Canadian friend who's going to come down and I think we're going to make a party out of it. Maybe we'll yeah. see. That would be pretty fun. It sure would be. 
Um, but, you know, I think all this, um, this interest in learning these, uh, to make your own tools, it, all of this is kind of centered around learning handcraft, learning to work with your hands. Um, some people, you know, their thing is they say, you know, I don't want to waste time tuning up old tools or, or making my own tools. I just want to get to the good part. Mm-hmm. I just want to make furniture. Um, and mortise and tendon is about furniture making, but it's more about furniture making than right. it is about furniture right. making. Emphasis on making. Yeah, so a lot of these related crafts, I think, really inform our understanding of what it is to work in a pre-industrial way with wood. Right. Um, this this new old way of working wood. Exactly. Um, and and so for us, I think it's a lot of it is um, trying to find all the exploring all the different facets of handcraft. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you were talking about Cooper yep. and harpsichord maker Ed. Yeah. And you know, I just find that all that kind of uh, exposure really enlightening to my own work process. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, you know, so many different areas. Like I said, some of the books that we picked up after talking to Will and seeing his book collection, you know, the the rural handcrafts of, what is that called? Of Of England and Britain. They're two different books, right? I I think so. Um, But just the the understanding of the materials and also the the foresight in, okay, so we're going to go and coppice this wood so that in 10 years we'll have materials for what we need. It was this definitely delayed gratification mindset, this this idea that, okay, to have these materials, there's patience involved, there's a process that you will walk through to get from here to there, and in 10 years, we'll be all set to do this task or this project. Um, it, it's just this, this much more kind of holistic view of using resources and understanding the materials than is common today. It's just mind-blowing to consider that that's how it was for everyone who wanted to make something. Yeah. Nowadays, we have everything at our fingertips. I mean, everything is, is cut and dimensioned and perfect, and um, it, it's the convenience is great, but I, I feel like a lot of the skill that, that was necessary has just has been lost because of yeah. that convenience. Well, it's like I was mentioning the other day i was talking about that um uh, i watched a a ted talk by this guy named thomas thwaites Hmm. um and it was something like how i made a toaster from scratch (laughs) okay and uh it was you know obviously i was intrigued wait a toaster from scratch like what does that mean like you went to home depot and bought some parts parts and like you know soldered something on no, no, from scratch. Um, so there was this guy who was interested in basically trying to understand what goes into making a, a modern toaster. So mm-hmm. he went to the store, bought a cheap, average, common toaster, uh, I think on the cheap end, like the cheapest toaster he could find, brought it home, took it apart to see what are all the parts that make this thing up. And he found, I don't know, a couple hundred different parts. And I think it was something like, 114 raw materials were involved or something. It was just like, he immediately realized there's no way on earth I will ever be able to fabricate this myself from raw materials. So he's talking about 
from rocks. From, ro- from rocks, <laughs> right. Okay. So he said, okay. That's from scratch. <clears throat> that's from scratch. Yeah. So he, uh, he was talking about, he said, all right, well, what I'll do is I'll focus on five materials. It was like uh, iron, mica, copper, nickel, um, oh and plastic. Plastic was the other one because he Whoa. said plastic was really important to, you know, what we think of as a modern toaster. That right. is plastic size. Yeah. So that was kind of like to not have it plastic wouldn't be the same thing. So he had to figure out how to source, how to create these things, process them from scratch. And so he went around and contacted all these institutions and uh, harvested iron and he got mica from someplace and he's harvesting copper and he's trying to figure out how to uh, process these in his backyard. He he started with some old 15th century books about smelting. <laughs> that is so awesome. And he then he was like making, trying to make plastic and he was using trying to make wheat plastic for a while, but then snails ate it. And I mean, he's, he's basically just like, I have no idea how to do any of this stuff. And I've already failed because I can't do the 114 raw materials. Right. But let me just try five and just push it and just see what I could even do. Right. And in the end, he basically ended up with this Frankenstein-looking molten crazy mess of stuff. He ended up reconstituting plastic that was mined out of the earth because of you know so it was out of some dump or something like that he melted it back down so was, he basically said i cheated the whole way because there's no way i one person can possibly make a toaster a modern toaster wow and so he had this like molten crazy thing with a copper barrack copper wire and he plugged it into an outlet oh my word and it worked for five seconds <laughs> and then it started on fire but he felt like that was a partial success because mm-hmm. one person made yeah. a, a, a shadow of a modern toaster. Oh my but for me, you know, you can take a lot of things away from that. Um, but I think for me, what really stuck out was we are so divorced from the, the products that we consume. Yeah. Uh, and that if, if something as simple and basic to someone's life as a toaster is so unbelievably inaccessible to us to be able to make Mm. that to me starts making me nervous about a lot of other things in in our lives um and so you know it just keeps keeps coming back to uh simple things that are repairable that are serviceable that are long lasting proven designs Um, those kinds of things i'm interested in developing not because i'm saying i'm going to throw my iphone in the trash um, but to say the answer isn't always in developing uh, more digital technology and taking away manual skills. Right. I think manual skills have a really important, um, they're a really important part of what it is to grow as a person. Right. Um, and so it was just a really interesting TED Talk. He wow. wrote a book about it. Um, I, I haven't read the book, but um, that whole project he was publishing online and I, you should look that up, uh, Thomas Thwaites. Uh, it's a horribly atrocious-looking thing, um, <laughs> but it's a it's a really cool project. Nice. So, I think a four-plane out of bog iron would be easier. It'd be easier. It'd be toaster. way easier. Yeah. Um, but you know, I just there is a a way that you could say, all right, you know, we're not interested in DIY stuff, right? You know, um, we're not interested in like trying to figure out what is the cheapest, easiest way we can 
teach people to make their own planes right with available materials from home depot right or lowe's or whatever yeah um we want people to grow in skills we want people to be able to uh, learn to work with real wood in traditional ways mm -hmm. that is just efficient um so i mean that was a lot of what i took away from uh the past couple weeks away and it's what mike and i've been talking about a lot yeah um, yeah, starting starting from the raw material, going out into the woods, and gathering what you need, and you, I mean, that that is mankind for thousands of years, and having those skills is such a valuable and important thing. Yeah, but, I, I think you know that's what that's what this publication is all about. Mm -hmm. It's all about. Uh, celebrating our heritage of handcraft, celebrating the ingenuity of our, our forefathers and foremothers and, and thinking about how, what does this mean to us in our lives and how can we learn from them? Um, so I, I think I'm excited about new directions. Uh, Mike and I were both working on articles for issue five. Um, uh, we're getting really excited about that. We're writing yeah. our own pieces and we just see so much of this, this movement, um, not toward necessarily you know codifying regional styles in this one thing or so much right things like that but this we see the, the the blossoming of this initial idea of taking the insights of makers and consult uh conservators and scholars and putting them all together to see like, what is the relevance of this to our 21st century lives right is this stuff just old-timey stuff where we wear puffy shirts right or it's is fun it, to wear because it's shirts. fun, or yeah. because it's educational, yeah. and therefore that's the only value it has. Yeah. Or does this really impact our lives, or should it impact our lives, yeah. and make us less dependent on um, on yeah. what's provided for us? Yeah, exactly. I we um, I met uh, one of the joiners at Williamsburg, Peter Hudson, and uh, he he and I have been actually communicating back and forth a little bit since our visit and he was saying that exact same thing you know the, the sense that how how do these how are these skills relevant today you know people see a lot of times i think historic reenactment and they think it's a, a cute quaint thing but like roy underhill says in his ted talk he doesn't see this as the woodworking of the past right he sees this as the woodworking of the future yeah for a lot of a lot of reasons um and so that's that's what we see too. We don't see this as fading or, you know, this isn't some um, curtain call for pre-industrial woodworking. This is, we are, we are excited about this because we found this is huge fun. This is awesome stuff. <laughs> yeah. And to learn these skills and to grow in these areas of skill and to really um, spread the word about, about developing hand skills and, and not relying on just just technology to do the work or to to um master the materials for you but but to do it yourself and to get out there and to take a plunge into things that you don't think you can handle and to learn from people who have gone before it's uh it's an awesome journey yeah one of my students at the at the port townsend class he i think he just got done it's something like he just got done hewing with a hatchet you know hewing the taper went to his bench it was four planing the rest down he came back and handed me the, the plane and his face was like beaming. His eyes were beaming. He's like, this is the coolest thing on the planet. Yeah. And I said, can I quote you on that? Yeah, I mean, there you go. He really was saying, this is so different. This is so exciting. 
and he was just he was beaming um so it was a really uh, it's just echoing everything we've been saying in this all these conversations have really kind of centered around this theme of liberating us from consumerism and just mm -hmm. growing so um yeah good stuff cool well thanks for uh, listening to the mortis and tenon podcast uh, if you haven't yet subscribed, you can subscribe uh, at iTunes or Stitcher or uh, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, if you have any comments, uh, we would love to hear from you. You can drop them below on the blog or you can email us uh, at Uh We really love hearing your feedback. We love we uh, getting ideas for uh, future episodes, but also just bouncing these ideas off you all to, to hear what you think. Uh, so thank you for listening. Take care.